0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John in the first chapter, John chapter 1. I'm sure you've heard this expression before, that familiarity breeds contempt. And it's really a slogan that reflects sort of a belief or a principle from the world of social psychology that um, it's known as the familiarity principle or the mere exposure effect. And basically, the familiarity principle says that people tend to become relaxed toward certain things the more familiar they are with those things. In other words, the more I'm around something, the more that I get to know something, the more that that something becomes a normal part of life, the less excited I am about it or the less attention I give to it that it truly deserves. You think about how this is true when you're learning to drive. (laughs) My daughter is in driver's ed and she's been in driver's ed over Christmas break but you remember what they taught you in driver's education that as a driver you need to keep your hands on the steering wheel at 10 and two. 10 and two. Mama go let her hear this what I'm about to say but before long y'all know it's not long before we're turning through the radio dial eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich and, and god forbid talking on the phone and among other things overly familiar over familiarity can lead to a lack of caution and it increase the likelihood of something terrible happening Now, I'm telling you that to simply say, if we're not careful, I think that Christmas can become too familiar to us. That's not to say that we ignore it whenever this time of year rolls around. But when it becomes too familiar, we can trivialize it, and the real significance of Christmas sort of gets lost among the wrapping paper. You know, it may very well be the most wonderful time of the year, as Andy Williams sang so eloquently about. But as Christian men and women, we'd better not forget why it's the most wonderful time of the year and what Christmas is really all about, because you can't have Christmas without Christ. And so you think about the irony of it. So many this year have celebrated Christmas, but all without Christ, and it's been a Christless Christmas for so many. And so we've heard the Christmas story so many times, that we're familiar with all of the details. We think we know what it all means, but I want to ask this question. Do we really? Because a genuine understanding of what Christmas is all about, it honors the most wonderful of divine accomplishments, recognizing the fact that Christmas is about the eternal, sovereign Son of God born into our world, God becoming man, living a sinless life, dying as a perfect sacrifice for sin, raised to life from the dead to impart eternal life to all who repent of their sin and believe in Him. And so Christmas is all about Emmanuel, which means God with us. God became man in the unique person of Jesus Christ in an event known as the Incarnation. And that simply comes from a Latin word, which means in the flesh. God in human form, God becoming human through the incarnation. This is what Christmas is all about, men and women. So, with that in mind, you're there in John's Gospel, chapter 1. Over the last couple of months, we've been in the epistle of 1 John. But really, the last couple of weeks, I've been in John, chapter 1, because here in his Gospel, in this first chapter, the Apostle John really reveals to us, describes for us who the Christ of Christmas really is. John writes his gospel with the stated objective that unbelievers would become believers, that people would read of Christ and believe on Christ and come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he says in chapter 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so since that's his objective in his gospel, it really shouldn't be surprising to us that he immediately sets out in establishing for his readers the true identity of Jesus Christ. And so really the last couple of weeks, we've been spending Christmas with the Apostle John. And we've been considering the Christmas story from the perspective of the Apostle John. Now, John doesn't give us any of the details that we're so familiar with. He doesn't tell us about the angels or the shepherds. He doesn't tell us about the nativity scene there in Bethlehem. It's, It's Matthew who tells us about the Magi. Luke is the one who describes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But John is going to take us all the way back much further than that, John takes us all the way back to the beginning. And there he says, in the beginning was the Word. Not that the Word had a beginning. <laughs> because we don't celebrate Christmas over the simple fact that the Son of God suddenly began to exist as He was born in Bethlehem. No, no, He merely made His entrance into the world and was born as one of us. But John takes us all the way back to the dawn of creation itself. And he says that the Word was there with God, and the Word was God. So the Christ of Christmas, listen to what the Apostle writes here beginning in verse number 1, John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now look down at verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christ of Christmas. I want to speak from that subject once more. John 1 14 is the most concise statement in the Bible that describes what we refer to as the incarnation. If you want to summarize what Christmas is really all about, four words from verse 14, the word became flesh. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, this amazing claim of the gospel that God the Son took on human flesh, deity wrapping himself up in humanity all without losing deity. And so John's message is that the eternal God himself, he's become human in the unique person of Jesus Christ. The creator himself has entered into his creation fully God and fully man. And what's the reason for this? This? Well, so that he might save sinners from sin and death. That's the message of John's gospel. And he wants to be clear in his assertion throughout the 21 chapters of his gospel that Jesus Christ was not merely a man, but he is the unique God-man. Deity wrapped up in humanity. The eternal God who is infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, who is everywhere present and unchanging, he has become man. And this is what John means when he writes what he says there in verse 14. Now, last Sunday we looked at really verses 1 through 5, but I kind of want to zero in on just verse 14 this morning, the Christ of Christmas. Verse 14 is a wonderful verse of Scripture telling us that the Word became flesh. And it's describing the Incarnation. And I think that it's important for us to understand what that means. And it's also important for us to understand why that matters. Because unless you understand what it really means, it's not going to matter that much in your life. The Christmas story just becomes another story that you add to your life. But when you understand what it means then you'll understand why it matters so very, very much. And so really in this verse, the Apostle John describes for us the the miracle behind the incarnation itself as an event. He has something to say about the majesty of the incarnation as well as the mission that it involved. So notice, number one, what he says about the miracle of the incarnation. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here in this opening chapter, he's told us that Christ is the eternal Word of God through whom creation has come into existence. Which, by the way, if you were reading this for the very first time, you perhaps wouldn't know what John or who John is referring to until you get to this 14th verse, in verse 15, where he connects the dots and says that Jesus Christ, He is the eternal Word made flesh. The psalmist said in Psalm 33 that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. This is the word made flesh now that John is describing here in this first chapter. For the Jewish mind who is familiar with the Old Testament, uh, it was clear that the word of the Lord could not be separated from the activity of the Lord. God's word going forth was his activity. For example, you read the creation account, Genesis 1, where it says, and God said, and it was so. It means that the word in action, God's word acted. What do words do? Words have the power to communicate something. The fact that John refers to the word points to the truth, that it's the nature of God to reveal himself. A person's word, it mean, it's the means whereby that person has revealed what he is thinking. Which, by the way, this is key to relationships, is it not? Imagine if I came up here and I just looked you in the face this morning without saying a word. It wouldn't be too long before someone sent a delegate up here to the pulpit and whisper in my ear, Are you okay? Have you had a nervous breakdown over Christmas? Right? So so words are key to interpersonal relationships, communication. So John is using personal language here in describing the Word of God. It's impossible to get to know someone unless they choose to speak. And so here's what John's doing. He's making it clear that God's Word is His ultimate self-disclosure. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And so it's the teaching of Scripture that you and I are completely dependent upon God's self revelation of himself. God's self-disclosure of Himself if we are to know Him. God is the one who has to take the initiative in revealing Himself to us. And it's the claim of the Bible that that's exactly what God has done in the person of His Son. God's got to speak if we're to know Him. And so in speaking, what does God do? Well, He creates the material universe. In speaking, He gives to us the precious words of Scripture. Through the process of inspiration. And finally, in speaking, He does so most clearly in the person of His Son, whom John refers to as the Incarnate Word. And in the miracle of the Incarnation, it's mystery of mysteries that the second member of the Trinity has come to where we are, born as one of us. He's taken on flesh, and stepped into our world. Word here translates that Greek term logos, which is a term that John uses three times in verse 1. He uses it once more here in verse 14, and, 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 and the word means reason, explanation. You think about what we mean through our English words, logic or logical. You go back in time, centuries before the Apostle John, that term logos had become a very significant concept among Greek philosophers because it was the way that they referred to this divine mind or principle that gives order to the universe. Logos, this was what the Greeks used to define what they called the fundamental principle behind the way that the universe itself functioned. The primary principle of the universe for the Greek mind was logos, the rationale, if you will, behind the universe. And so in the Greek mind, logos, this was at the beginning of everything, that which was responsible for the launching of everything. The Jewish mind conceived of the Word as that which had launched everything. Going back to the creation story, Thereby really providing a great opportunity for the Jew to have a conversation with his Greek friend about the nature of origins. And by the way, could you imagine how that conversation might have went in those days? Where maybe you had a Greek from Athens who sat down with a Jew from Jerusalem, and the Greek from Athens says, you know, the logos, this is the fundamental principle behind everything. And the Jew says, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because... What do you think the fundamental principle behind everything is? Do you think it's an it? Or do you think it's a person? The Greek mind says it's an it. Oh, but the Jew comes along and says, no, it's a person. God, the God who's revealed himself, he's responsible for creation. He's responsible for the universe. Well, John goes a step further and he says, let me tell you about this person. This person is the second member of the triune God And he stepped into his creation. The Creator himself has stepped into his creation in the unique person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who's always existed with the Father. At a moment in real time, he enters into time, space, matter, and he reveals the Father, and he comes to save sinners. And so it's not so much a principle then, but it's a person. That's what John is getting at here. Christ is the fundamental person or principle behind the universe, the logic, if you will, behind the universe. Elsewhere, the Scripture says He's the one responsible for upholding the universe with His sovereign word of power. And were it not for Him, things would be in oblivion. But no, no. Christ is the wisdom of God, the power of God. He is the agent of creation. This is what is meant by this term, logos. So John wants us to know that this Jesus, the very one whom the other gospel writers tell us was born in Bethlehem, he existed long before his birth and is the eternal Lagos, the Word of God. It means that there never was a time when the Word was not there was never a thing that did not depend upon him for its existence. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 when he says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, which is to say that Christ is the preexistent Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. And this is historic Christianity. Christ existed before the world began. Uh, He emerges throughout the Old Testament in type and in shadow. He enters our world and becomes one of us at the Bethlehem event. And so John is taking us back before time, long back before creation and time itself, and he makes this mind boggling claim about Jesus. And here it is He was there. In the beginning, He was there. Now, isn't that just an amazing thought? And you add to the fact that that, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, at a very real moment in time, John says in verse 4, this logos became flesh. The eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father. The one to whom creation owes its existence. He has entered into that creation. Now listen, don't be so overly familiar with Christmas that you miss the point. This is the miracle of the Incarnation. And we know as the Incarnate Word, Jesus possesses all the unique attributes of God. Verse 3 here in chapter 1 says all things were made through him. Without him nothing was made that was made. He's the creator. And scripture's filled with evidence that Christ is God. You see it everywhere throughout the New Testament. Think about Philippians chapter 2, what what the Apostle Paul says uh, when he writes, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, which means though he existed as God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He thought it not something to hold on to, to be equal with God. Paul goes on and says that he humbled himself. He took upon him the form of a man, being found in appearance as a man. It doesn't mean that he ceased being God by becoming man, but that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. The Word was made flesh. Now, this would have been a shocking term to the Greek mind, you know, in John's day. And this will really add some light into our study in 1 John, where the Apostle John is dealing with those Gnostic influencers who were denying that Christ had come into flesh. And John says in 1 John that this is really the spirit of Antichrist that denies that, that he is God in the flesh, The Greek word that he uses, translated as flesh there, was a rather crude term that just speaks of frail and weak humanity. In the Greek mind, that dualistic way of thinking basically saw death as the ultimate release from the flesh or from the body, and that was true salvation. The spirit was good, the flesh was bad. And so it would have been mind-boggling to the Greek mind for John to say, the eternal word, the eternal logos, he has been born and he has taken on flesh. He became flesh. I like how Sinclair Ferguson describes it in a terrific book that he wrote uh, called uh, Child in a Manger. But listen to this. He says, the word remained everything that he always was. But now he was all that in our human flesh. In all of its weakness and frailty, dependent on God for everything, constantly exposed to the assaults on his senses made by the fallen world. The Word became flesh in the form of an embryo. He lived within the dark chamber of his mother's womb in the fetal position. He became a tiny human life, dependent upon the nourishment he received from Mary a small human speck in his own vast cosmos. And so here you have the Greek mind and says, you know, the Greek says the logos, this is the rationale behind the cosmos. And apart from the logos, all you would have would be chaos. But John comes along and he says this, the reason that there is a cosmos and not chaos is because the Lagos has spoken the cosmos into existence. <laughs> and now the Lagos, he has entered into his cosmos in order to redeem and rescue his cosmos and get right what the first man got wrong. So this is the miracle then of the incarnation. Now, notice that John says a second thing about the majesty of the event itself. The majesty. Really the majesty of the incarnate word. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there, that's an important word, translates a verb that means tabernacle among. And it's using the language of the Old Testament here that John's readers would have been very familiar with. Upon giving the law to his people, what is it that God desired to do but dwell among his people? And he told Moses to build a a sanctuary so that God could come and dwell in the midst of his redeemed people. It's always been the desire of God to tabernacle or dwell among humanity made in his image. And so this was fundamental to Jewish worship, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the holy of holies where the manifest presence of God resided among his redeemed people. This is the same pattern that would be true of the temple in Jerusalem later on, but before the temple, there was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And so John's readers are familiar with the Old Testament. His words here would have reminded them of that tabernacle where Moses met with God during those long years in the wilderness. And so it was the place where God came to dwell among his people. So John is reaching back into the Old Testament. He's drawing upon the rich imagery of the tabernacle where God's manifest presence was with His people there in the Holy of Holies. But now, John says, the Word has become flesh and to look upon Christ is to behold the glory of God. John says, we've seen His glory. Under the old covenant system, when Moses went into the earthly tent of meeting to meet with the glory of the God of heaven, you know what happened when he came out? His face was radiating that glory. And so here's what you see in the Old Testament. You've got a sinful man who went into the earthly tent and witnessed the glory of God. Now, here's what John is saying here in verse 14. The glory of the God of heaven has come into our earthly tent to meet with sinful man all in the unique person of his son. This Word who is eternally with the Father, one who's face to face with Him in eternal glory, He's now become flesh. He's now entered into our sinful world. And John says we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. What's he referring to here when he says we've seen His glory? Well, perhaps this is a reference or an allusion to the transfiguration. You remember that John was among a inner circle of disciples, there were only three who accompanied the Lord Jesus there on the mountain of transfiguration. You can read about it Matthew chapter 17. The synoptic gospels give us the details. But there on the mountain of transfiguration, they, they witness as the face of the Lord becomes extremely brilliant, brighter than the sun. His clothing becomes a radiant white. So here you have the Son who... He's clothed in beams of light. It's a supernatural event. And for a split second, John and that inner circle of disciples are able to look upon the glory of who Jesus is. Now, it's interesting to me that John doesn't mention that event in his gospel. But for John, whenever he writes about the glory of Christ, do you know he always connects it to his suffering? He always connects the glory of Jesus to the suffering of Jesus, Uh, For example, John 12, 23. Listen to this as Jesus prays. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. John 17, in His high priestly prayer Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now listen to this, and this will blow your mind. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so one person has said it this way, according to the Gospel of John, what reveals Christ's glory most clearly is the contrast between His eternal identity and His earthly experience. Now think about this. He left eternal glory... Where from eternity past, he was worshipped by myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angelic beings. He came into our world of darkness via the darkness of a virgin's womb. From there, he emerges into the sinfulness and the brokenness of our world. From the darkness of the womb to the darkness of the tomb, his road was paved with suffering. The prophet Isaiah said that he would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. In the darkness of Calvary's cross, what do you see but the Son who's willingly offering Himself to the Father as the one and only sacrifice for sin? And that the eternal Word would do such a thing. This, according to the Apostle John, this is His glory. And John says this is what we saw up close and personal. We witnessed it firsthand. So the miracle of the Incarnation, the majesty of the Incarnation, and to notice finally one final truth, the mission. Having understood what it means that the eternal Son of God comes into our world, He's wrapped up in human flesh, understanding what that means. Now, listen, you're able to understand why it's important. It was all for the sake of a mission. John says, we beheld His glory glory is of the only Son from the Father. Now listen to this. He says He's full of grace and truth. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in order to fulfill a purpose and a mission. This is summed up in John's words here, grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal truth and provide grace. Paul expresses it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So there's a purpose that God has in mind. This is so good that God would act in real time. He would send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What is this? This is reference to the promise, the initial promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 that what Adam and Eve forfeited due to sin and disobedience when God is pronouncing a curse upon the serpent, what is it that he says? He says that man will be rescued through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, even though it meant that his own heel would be bruised in the process. It's the first promise of the gospel. And so for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, here you had those who were looking for this seed of the woman. And the genealogy narrows through Noah and his son Shem. And it gets specific. God establishes a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or Israel. And then even among Israel's sons, Judah is going to be the tribe that the seed of the woman is going to emerge from. And from among the tribe of Judah... One of Jesse's sons is going to be king who's going to have a kingdom, but this promise goes far beyond just Jesse's son David, but to David's son, to whom is going to be given an eternal dominion and kingdom. It's the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God's keeping. And it gets specific And you cross the threshold from the Old Testament into the New Testament, which is why Matthew 1.1 is such an important verse of Scripture when it talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. He's the promised seed of the woman whom Paul says was born of a woman, born under the law. And here's the mission, here's the purpose, that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God. Now folks, listen, this is why Christmas is so very important. The incarnation was a supreme act of humiliation because the eternal Son of God humbles himself by becoming man in order to get to those who could never get to him. God sends forth his Son on a mission of mercy, born of a woman. And you see, the thing is, he had to be God in order to save us because only God can defeat the power of sin and death and destroy the work of Satan. And yet, in order to save us, he had to be man because only man can substitute for man and die man's death. So he had to be the God-man. He had to be God to give his sacrifice infinite value. But he had to be man in order to bear our sins in his own body. You say, why does this matter? Let me tell you why it matters because, listen, if you're lonely and you're grief-stricken this Christmas season, you're fearful, you're hopeless, you're broken, you're battered, you're wounded, you're shattered. If life for you has, has, has yielded unfruitful, unproductive, Shattered dreams and ambitions for the sinful, for the scarred, for the needy. Here's the promise of Christmas. That God himself will come to you and dwell with you and give you his life. And that is what the incarnation is all about, my friend. That's what it's all about. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Oh Amen. You know the theology of Christmas really ought to provoke wonder and worship in our minds and hearts as believers. It ought to provoke witness to the world, it reflects the missionary heart of our God. and as those made in His image and those in whom He's come to live and dwell. Should we not also reflect his same passion and spirit of evangelism and mission in the world? You know, if this child in the manger is simply a human being and no more then you can come to the Christmas season and you can admire him maybe for what he did and for what he taught but if he's a child and nothing more Then you have no right. And really, you can't call him Savior, and you certainly couldn't call him Lord. But you see, if he is God made man, eternal deity wrapped up in humanity who stepped into our world, splitting time in the process. And so significant was his birth. That we measure the calendar year in terms of his birth then this Christ of Christmas can't be ignored can he he can't be avoided Alistair Begg says it this way he can't be sidestepped you will either take your stand on this rock or you will be broken by this rock but you will not be able to avoid this rock. So what have you done with this rock, the Christ of Christmas? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus in the forgiveness of sin, if you've never by faith come to Christ and received eternal life as a free gift from him, then why not now? Right now, in an attitude of repentance and faith, right there where you are, confess your sin and your need to God. And cry out to Him in faith. And believe in Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christmas. Pray something along these lines. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. But I believe the good news of the gospel, that God became man in the unique person of the Son, bled and died for me and my sin on a criminal's cross, was buried in death, but arose in victory and power and eternal life. And I trust you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior, and I confess you as Lord. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing Those of you who've prayed with me this morning to receive Christ as your Savior, I'll ask that you step out of where you've been seated come and pray with one of our pastoral staff. We'd love to talk to you. We can even stay after the service and talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, what baptism is, and why baptism is the first act of obedience for a new believer. But Lord, take these truths, seal them up in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.